So before we get started this morning, I just want to ask you a few questions. A couple, anyways. How many people here have messed up since they professed their faith in Jesus and became what we call a Christian? Oh, wait. <laughs> How many of you who raised your hands pulled away or made space after you messed up? And what I mean by pulling away is maybe you, you made a little space between you and God, maybe a little space between you and your Christian brothers and sisters, maybe started coming to church less or, or not coming at all, right? Maybe you stopped reading or you stopped praying. What happens when we mess up is, is we tend to feel guilt and shame, right? And shame and guilt, what they do is they cause us to isolate, to avoid, to hide. Sometimes we even run. And this is nothing new really, is it? Nope. Pastor Brian mentioned a few weeks back when he shared from Genesis that the first thing Adam and Eve did when they broke God's rule was cover up and hide. Right? Cover up and hide. Thousands of years later, here we are still doing the same things when we mess up. We're born with this instinct it seems, doesn't it? <clears throat> We're potty training my son right now. Oh yeah, you can laugh. Lots of fun. We have this half-naked boy running around our house all the time. And it's definitely a little awkward for visitors. So anyways, during potty training, as I'm sure many of you can attest to, there are what we call accidents, right? And when my son has one of these accidents, he doesn't usually say, Oops, Daddy, I had an accident on the floor, and then points to it and says, here it is. No. Instead, he makes it interesting. He hides behind a chair or something, and we have to go on this treasure hunt to figure out where his mess is and then discover what kind of mess we're, we're looking for. Really fun times, right, honey? It's funny, but the fact that as adults we sort of do the same thing is kind of sad, isn't it? This brings me to the point of today's message. It's a picture of how merciful and loving our God is. It's the story about Jesus' good friend and disciple, Peter. Most of you know this story, but in case you don't, I'm just going to paraphrase and share how we came to this point, because we need context, right? We need to know a whole story. Context is everything. I mean, if you walked into my house and saw my naked son hiding behind a chair, and I didn't tell you why I didn't wear pants or why he was hiding, you might think my wife and I were a little weird, right? We are, but not for that. So let's look at the entirety of the story through the, through the Gospels that we know. Peter, who was originally known as Simon, was a fisherman. Nobody special. Nothing extraordinary, really, about him. Wasn't a biblical scholar. He was just this ordinary working class man who didn't meet the requirements of this religious Hebrew culture that he grew up in. You know, we know that as boys, they would go off at five years old and start studying the Torah and all the scriptures. But when they got to a certain age, you know, if they didn't cut the mustard, if you will, then they were sent back to their families to work in their trades. And so that's where he was. But see, Jesus saw something different in him and his friends. Right? Jesus decided to change his name to Peter or Petros in the Greek, which means small stone. See, Jesus pulls up on him and his brother one day while they're working, and he called them to follow him. And they did. You know, they knew who Jesus was, 
right? His reputation and his sto- the stories of his miracles and what he was doing preceded him. So when they saw him, they knew who he was. And when he invited them, they, without hesitation, dropped their nets and followed him, it says. Not only was Peter part of Jesus' original 12, but he was also part of his inner circle, right? One of three men that Jesus spent most of his time with, right? The three guys that were his best friends in ministry and in his life here on earth. Peter's name is mentioned 193 times in Scripture. By far the most of any of those original 12. Peter spent three years with Jesus and had witnessed and experienced a lot. And it's pretty safe to say that Peter was Jesus' good friend, his right hand, if it, if it were. Peter opened his mouth without, make, without thinking sometimes. Anybody relate? We call that passionate, right? Peter was passionate. God bless you. I love that. When Jesus started saying crazy stuff and people started turning away, Peter stuck around, right? When the masses would come and Jesus was getting their attention and feeding them and all this was going on, he would start to say things like, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, you know, and speaking in in sort of these strange phrases and and everybody would walk away and he asked Peter, he's like, are you going to go too? You're going to leave me too? And then Peter just says, where else would I go, Lord? Where else am I going to go? You have the words of eternal life. You've called me to this life. You have shown me truth and freedom. I'm here. I'm with you to the end. And he was sure of that. And then when Jesus was arrested in in the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter came to his defense and cut off the ear of one of his guards, you know, proving that loyalty, proving that passion and love for Jesus. You know, and as a fisherman, it's probable that he wasn't aiming for his ear. He just wasn't a skilled swordsman. So, you know... Think about it. Thankfully, you just gave him the Van Gogh. But before that scene in the garden, on the last night of Jesus' earthly ministry, he confronted Peter and he told him, he said, you're going to betray and deny me three times before the morning comes. You're going to betray me. You're going to deny me three times. And Peter exclaimed, I'll never deny you, Jesus. That's never going to happen. But as we know, he did. And just like Jesus said three times before the rooster crowed. In Luke 22, verse 61, it describes that moment. Right when Peter denied him for the third time and the rooster crowed, right? And it says that the Lord turned and looked at Peter. The Lord turned and looked at Peter at Peter. They made eye contact, right? But it wasn't just casual eye eye contact, excuse me. The Greek word used here is emblepo, which actually means to look at with the mind, to observe observe fixedly, or to discern clearly. It's like this deep looking into the soul, maybe, right? It's, It's used about 12 other times in scripture, and that one that the one that can really help us to understand the depth of this emblepo looking, the way Jesus looked at Peter in that moment, is in Mark chapter 8 when Jesus healed the blind man. Right? Can you imagine 
You know, you went from not being able to see your whole life, you went from being completely blind to all of a sudden you can see everything because you met Jesus. Imagine the intensity of your looking around and taking in your scenery. I mean, I know when I first really came to Christ, when I first had that conversion moment, if you will, that Damascus Road moment, I remember going outside in the middle of downtown Brockton, as it were, and going, wow, it's so beautiful out here. I remember thinking, the sky is blue, the birds are loud, the, look at how green those trees are, everything, even people, the way I saw them, there was just like this emblepo looking that started happening in my life. And so here's Jesus just fixed in gaze at Peter right after he denies him. Imagine what it was like in that moment for, this, for Peter. Peter was probably ashamed of himself and looking over kind of like to see if Jesus had heard him deny him that third time and Jesus was already just staring at him in blepo. It was at this moment that scripture says Peter remembered the words of Jesus and how he had told him he would deny him and then it says Peter went out and wept bitterly. He ran, he took off, he was broken. And then we know how the rest of the story goes, right? Jesus is severely beaten and tortured before he's forced to carry his own cross up to Golgotha where he would be publicly crucified for our sins. Peter was weeping bitterly. Let's go to John chapter 21, 1 through 17. That's what I'm going to preach out of this morning. Sort of just prepared the setting, if you will. But it says, after these things, Jesus manifested himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias, which is also known as the Sea of Galilee. And he manifested himself in this way. Simon Peter and Thomas called Didymus and Nathanael of Cana and Galilee and the sons of Zebedee and two others of his disciples, they were all together, seven of them. Simon Peter says to him, I'm going fishing. And they said, we're going to come with you. They went out and they got in the boat and that night they caught nothing, zero. But when the day was now breaking, early morning, Jesus stood on the beach, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. And so Jesus says to them, children, you do not have any fish, do you? And they answered him, no. And it's almost like this this phrase, children, it's like a fatherly thing, you know? You don't have what you need, do you? And so what does he say? He, he says, cast the net on the right-hand side of the boat, and you'll find a catch. So they cast, and they were not able to haul it in because of the great number of fish. Right? Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, and I love that John writes that. <laughs> he writes that about himself. The disciple whom Jesus loved, me, said to Peter, it is the Lord. So when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put his outer garment on, for he was stripped for work, and he threw himself. Didn't jump in. It says he threw himself into the sea. You know, not to knock John here either, because how many of us can say that? You know, Roy came up to me after the first service. He goes, you know, he goes, how many of us can say that I'm the one that Jesus loves with confidence? Such a powerful thing that John can do that, right? But now here we are. He says right away to Peter, Peter, it's him. 
No, reminded of that first time when they met, when they didn't catch anything that night either. These great fishermen. (laughs) And he's saying, like, look, it's him. He's here. And Peter is just overwhelmed with joy and his love for Jesus that he literally just takes his shirt, he ties it on, and he jumps and throws himself in the ocean. And he swims to Jesus. But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from the land, about a hundred yards, dragging a net full of fish. A hundred yards. A hundred yards is a football field. There's one right behind the building. Take a look when you leave. I mean, they weren't that far for a boat, but for Peter to jump off that boat and swim excitedly, I was in the pool yesterday. I wasn't swimming 100 yards. I floated for that much, I'd say. Yeah, all the whole time. Thanks, honey, for reminding me. But I'm wondering, you know, if Peter's like halfway, 50 yards, maybe 60 yards into this thing going, I could have just stayed on the boat. This was a bad idea. No, it doesn't say anything like that. There's no hesitation. There's just this sheer joy and zeal and excitement to be with Jesus after he messed up. Now, he had seen him a couple other times, right? This is, it says this is the third time, but they hadn't talked yet. So this is it. And, and, and Peter is still just like, wow, he's still coming around. He's still here. And, you know, Jesus is just appearing to them, you know, sporadically at this point, kind of weaning them off because it's time for them to do their ministry. And so when they got to the land, it says they saw a charcoal fire already laid and fish placed on it and bread. And Jesus says to them, bring some of the fish which you now have caught. And Simon Peter went up and drew the net to the land land full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. And Jesus says to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples ventured to question him at this point. None of them said, who are you, knowing that it was the Lord. So Jesus came, and he took the bread, and he gave it to them, and the fish likewise, kind of almost like that Last Supper moment again, right? I'm back. And this is now the third time that Jesus was manifested to the disciples after he was raised from the dead, it says. And now I love this. Verse 15, it says, So when they had finished breakfast, after they ate, after they broke bread together, Jesus says to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then tend to my lambs. And he says to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he says to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he says to him, then shepherd my sheep. He says to him a third time, Simon, Son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he says to to Jesus, he says, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. So then Jesus looks at him one more time and says, then tend my sheep. Tend my sheep. Just take a moment here. Just look at the scene. You know, what's just happened here? Right, Jesus shows up early in the morning. They've been out all night. They didn't catch a thing. He appears to them, and, and, and when they realize it's him, Peter jumps out of the boat, and he swims to the shore, and breakfast is waiting for him. Breakfast is waiting. 
Jesus is waiting. So this is the third time he's appeared, but the first, which was right after the resurrection, was in Galilee. Right at the empty tomb, Jesus told Mary and Mary to go tell the disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. I love how he says that. You know, go tell the disciples and Peter to meet me in Galilee. Like, you're not excluded just because you messed up, just because you denied me. Be very specific and tell the disciples and Peter to meet me where I told them to meet me. And so they do. But Jesus hadn't had that awkward talk yet with Peter, had he? Peter was probably questioning himself and his role at this point. He's questioning his entire identity that Jesus had given him. Who am I now? Am I Peter? Am I the rock? What does this mean for me in my future? And so what does he do? He goes back to fish, right? So let's look at this in the first 14 verses, 1 through 14. Here's the disciples led by Peter the denier, right? And they're back on the boat. Back on the boat. And this is exactly where Jesus met Peter and Andrew that very first time, right? You know what I think is great is he didn't meet them in some formal religious setting, did he? He didn't wait for them to come to him, to the temple. He didn't say, we have to do this in the upper room. He goes to them in their mess. He meets us in our mess. And he goes to them in the life that they've turned back to. He meets them where they were and probably spend most of their lives, just like us. Jesus doesn't need a special forum, does he? You know, Pastor Willie just shared how he met him in his car on his way to work one morning. Right? He can meet us while we're pushing a vacuum. He can meet us while we're in the convenience store. He can meet us while we're at work. He can meet us while we're walking down the street. It doesn't matter. He's omnipresent. He's everywhere. A lot of the times he's there and he's meeting us and we're just not listening. We're just not paying attention to that still small voice. And we're wondering, God, where are you? We don't open our Bible. We don't pray. God, why aren't you speaking to me? But Jesus meets us in our mess. He doesn't leave us. We run from him, right? There's an old saying, if if you don't feel as close to God as you used to, well, who moved? Because he hasn't. Instead of fishing for men as they had been commissioned, they went back to fishing for fish. Right? Anyone else ever do that? After you mess things up or they don't go as you plan, you just go back to what you know. Anyone ever do that? Yeah. You find that place where you're comfortable. It's almost like self-disqualification, right? Once we come to Christ, we're all given a mandate. It's not like, you know, I think sometimes we think like, oh, if I can just get that person to go to church, that would be great so the pastor can speak to them or they can hear a message. Guess what? That person may never walk in a church door and then what? Are you just waiting on that invitation to be accepted? You're mandated just like we are. It's not just pastors, it's not just deacons, it's not just elders and worship team leaders. It's not. It's every single one of us are given the same exact mandate. We may have different gifts and abilities, right? Some, maybe some have more Bible knowledge or, or understanding, 
Maybe some are better speakers or communicators. Maybe you're more relational than someone else. But God has put you in places for a very specific reason, reason, and that's your ministry. You know, we always say ministry doesn't start when you leave the house. It starts when you pull into the driveway. It starts right there in your home, and then it works outward from there. We're all called in our everyday life to live this great commission out, to make disciples, to be disciples, to follow Jesus and show the world what that looks like. And man, does that world, this world, need that now more than ever. What's also worth some consideration here is, is that they were, all out, they were out all night and caught nothing. Again. It's kind of funny, actually, isn't it? If you think about it, they went back to this thing that they thought was something that they could fall back on. It, it's what they thought they knew, and they apparently weren't even that good at it. You know? Like, it's funny where we can find comfort. Can anyone relate? We go back to these familiar things because they're just available to us. It's a place to hide. It's a place to sort of get back in the rut and the mundane. But I'm going to tell you, this is something I learned a long time ago. Comfortability is not calling. Comfortability does not mean calling. Comfortability is an enemy of growth. Comfortability is an enemy of maturity. You want to grow? Get uncomfortable. You want to mature spiritually? Then allow God to make you uncomfortable. Embrace the uncomfortability. Because that's where you're going to start to really know who you are. Your limits, your abilities, your toughness, and how deep your faith is. But that's only going to happen when things are tough and when we step out of the boat and when we actually take those chances and we go where God's called us and we actually start doing and living this out. Right? So once again, Jesus tells them to throw the net over the other side of the boat and then boom, just like the first time, another record catch. Imagine that. Another record catch. Jesus challenges them. Try something different. And this might speak to some of us here today, right? Maybe you keep coming up empty-handed and unfulfilled because you're doing the same old thing and expecting different results in your life, right? Maybe that's the problem. You know, I, I heard that was the definition of insanity, right? Doing the same thing over and over again and expecting things to change, right? But what ends up happening is, is when we do the same things over and over again and we're unfulfilled and unsatisfied, well, that should just tell us. We need to do something different because you know what ends up happening is years start to go by. Decades start to go by. And the next thing you know, you're still unsatisfied. You're still unfulfilled. You're still caught in that rut, pursuing the things that you don't really need to pursue or the things that have enslaved you. And you're not pursuing Christ to the fullest degree. But when he came into your life, he called you to something more than that life that we get trapped in. He called us to something greater and sure, you may not see tangible evidence of that calling every day, and it may get really, really tough. How many people know ministry is not easy? But you know what? It's good, and it's rewarding, and it has eternal value, and it's greater than any bank account, and it's greater than any home you can own, or any car you can drive, or shoes you can buy. Yes, lady, even shoes. Someone clapped at that. Woo! Remember I said that, okay? 
See, when Jesus' disciples listened to Jesus instead of doing things their own way, their needs and expectations weren't only met, but they received abundant, abundantly and immeasurably more. I'm going to tell you, I, that resonates with me so much. And I'm sure a lot of you can totally identify with that. You know, we know Ephesians 3.20, what does Paul says? He says, now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than we ever hoped or imagined. Right? That's who our God is. That doesn't mean he's going to fill up your bank account. Jesus talks about an abundant life in John 10.10. An abundant life that transcends this life. It supersedes, it's eternal, it has lasting value, it has internal value. You know, something a dollar can't do, right? The Holy Spirit fills us, he fills our hearts, he fills our minds, he fills our souls, and he gives us this ability to forgive and to love and to serve, to become selfless and sacrificial, to lay ourselves down, our lives, our very lives down for our brothers and our sisters and become the people we were called to be. Rather than looking at everybody else and saying, why don't you? How come you? I'm not going to if you don't. No, you just go and you say, you know what? God so loved me that I am willing. He rescued me from X, Y, and Z. And so I'm willing. And he can do immeasurably more. I know Pastor Brian said it. I have said it. I can remember that moment when I went into Teen Challenge and all I said was, God, save my life. Can, I, can you just get me off of drugs and maybe restore my family? Because I'll be fine if you do that. Right? So that way I can go home and pick up where I left off and then just, you know, live a better life without all these other issues that I have. Mental health struggles and, and, and all these other, you know. He said no. <laughs> he said I'm going to do more than that. And so... Immeasurably more. Man, the peace, the joy, the contentment, the purpose, the meaning, the substance of life. It's unbelievable. There is nothing greater. Does that mean my life has been rainbows and butterflies for the past 13 years? Absolutely not. But it has been so much better than the first 36. Immeasurably. Amen. You know what's funny is they didn't even realize this was Jesus until this happened with the fish, you know? It was kind of like a deja vu moment, right? John looks over at Peter and he's like, it's him, it's Jesus. And Peter, boom, jumps into the water. And it's almost like the familiarity of that moment flipped a switch in Peter's brain, right? It's like Jesus knew exactly what Peter needed to remember his love for Jesus and God's goodness. Jesus knew. Can anyone relate? Yeah. Right? When we're avoiding or a little detached or hesitant in our faith, bam, all of a sudden he shows up. He hits us right in the heart, almost like he knows us intimately. Because that's who our God is. That's who our God is. He's not some impersonal, unknowable God, far off, throwing down lightning bolts. That's not who he is. He's he's the God who, yes, is as vast or more vast and infinite than the universe, but he also knows the hair, every hair on every head 
not just in this room, but ever was and ever will be. He's counted and collects all of your tears in his bottle, it says. Each of those tears speak a, a special message to him, a prayer that can't even be spoken with words, and he is in them. That's who our God is. He does what he needs to do. Hebrews says that he disciplines those who are legitimate, those who are his. And so when you're going through a tough time in life and all you're trying to do is escape that season, stop for a moment and ask yourself, is this God? Is God allowing this to happen because he's trying to draw something out of me? Because he wants more for me? Because he wants to make me more like his son, Jesus? Because that's what happens. Sometimes we're just trying to escape to comfortability once again. But what God's saying is, is no, you need to be pinched a little right now. You need to go through this season in your life so that I can draw out of you, so I can reveal to you who you really are and what your potential is and what you're capable of. Let's stop running from him, church. Let's start doing what Peter did. I love this too. Jesus, once they come to the shore with their 153 giant fish in this net that they can barely pull, that he just provided for them, right? Undoubtedly, right? There's no way they can deny that. He says, can I have a few in return? Can you just give me a small portion of that giant catch I provided for you, right? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound familiar? See, we can learn a lot from this moment. Like Jesus already had fish cooking. He already had breakfast ready. But we can learn a lot for this moment when it comes to our own giving and tithing. Because if we see it as God has given us everything, he's the one who fills our nets. He's the one who gave us our jobs and put us in these places and opened our, the doors and gave us the abilities to earn a buck. All of it is given from him, and all he asked back is for a little portion of that. And you know what else? You know what he does in that moment? He gives it back to them. He gives it right back to them. So they knew, like, yeah, I'll give you this, no problem. It's all from you anyways. Sure, you can have all of it. I mean, like, no, I just want a little. And you know what? I'm going to throw this on the grill, too, and we're just going to have a bigger breakfast. We're going to eat a little bit more. Right? And that's the same thing with our tithes and our offerings. You know, when we give, when we realize, again, that it all comes from him and we're just giving it back, we know that it's just coming back to us as well. You know why? Because we're one body. We're one body with many parts. And there are some people in this body who have greater needs than others. There are some people in the community who are hurting and desperate and needy. They call them the least of these in Matthew 25. And so when you know that, the, that the, the resources of your church are being stewarded properly, when you have all the right people and things in place, and you trust in your leadership, then you trust that it's going to be used for God's kingdom. Amen? Amen? And so when you're giving, if you don't feel that excitement, you're sowing into the kingdom of God, that God has filled your net and he just wants you to give a little bit back, then don't give. Sorry, pastor. Okay. 
Don't. You know what? The Bible says God loves a cheerful giver. He wants a grateful giver. He wants people who appreciate what they have to give back as an act of worship because it is. Giving is an act of worship. Worship is a lifestyle. It's not a song on a Sunday morning. Worship is how we live when we walk out these doors and when we wake up tomorrow morning. Worship is how we treat the people in our lives. Worship is how we steward our finances. Worship is how we treat the things that God has pro provided or the relationship God has created in our lives. Come, it covers everything. And so they're worshiping him right now. They're, they're surrendered to him right now. And they're giving a little bit back because he has given them so much. And that's not even considering the three years prior that they walked with him and they, he poured into them and loved them radically. The reality is, is that Jesus meets our needs and then some. We just need to be generous with our portion and remember that God asked for his so that more might be fed. More might be fed. Jesus isn't broke. <laughs> Jesus, God doesn't use our money, doesn't need our money the way you think. God wants us to share and be partakers, partners, as Pastor Brian talked about in the gospel, as Paul puts it throughout the New Testament. That's our calling, right? And there's something I learned a long time ago, and, and it's funny because God has been very tough with me when it comes to finances, because I was very frivolous most of my life. I was, I was very irresponsible when it came to money and belongings and things like that. You couldn't put $5 in my pocket, it would burn a hole. And then he showed me a whole other side of it. And, and so, as Paul writes in Philippians 4, you know, I, I, I've learned to be grateful with a lot and grateful with little, knowing that God is in control of it all. And people, in my worst times, I was just talking to Dave about this, you know, and, and Dave just experienced something very similar, and we're both talking, right? A couple of tough guys here with our tattoos crying, right? That's who you are. That's the kind of church we have, yeah. A bunch of grown men crying all the time. But I said, you know, that I had an experience with those same people, those same brothers in Christ, Years back, when my wife and I were hurting financially, and we didn't know, I had to get rid of one of our cars, and I'm like, that's okay, God will provide, and I'm like, I hope God provides. You didn't marry a loser, I swear. All these things are going through my head, and then people show up generously with their resources, and they say, it's okay, I got you. You know why? Because I know you're pursuing the Lord. I know you're serious about this. I know you love Jesus, and I know you're committed. And so we're here because God has given us some so we can give you some. And they carried me out of a ditch, and that's what happens. And I look back now, and I'm like, man, look at all we have now, honey. I cry when I pull into my driveway some nights. And I just look at my house, and I go, this is my house. Are you kidding me? It's unbelievable what God will do when you're obedient to him. Amen. You cannot outgive God. <laughs> and the last point I just want to make is this. In verses 15 through 17, when Jesus restores Peter, you notice that he restores gently. That's who our God is. Jesus restores gently. 
And I'm not going to get into a long-winded breakdown of these few verses. I know Pastor Brian's preached on it, and I've heard it been, it's been preached on many times before, and, and it's going to be preached again. You know, the three I love you's and what they mean and the different in, difference in Greek. But that's not what I want to talk about this morning. I just wanted to, to point out a, a few important things about that conversation. Before Jesus sits him down, and before Jesus restores him, you know what he does before anything happens is, is he shows Peter provision, he shows him compassion, and he shows him hospitality before any confrontation or restoration. Amen. He meets his immediate needs, his physical needs, his material needs, because he is the good shepherd who cares for his sheep. That's who Jesus is. And we can trust him. Jesus is leading Peter to repentance here and restoring his role as an under-shepherd, but he's also reminding him of where he came from and who he was before he met the Savior. Right? Jesus, you know, he says to him, if you, if you look close, he says, Simon, son of John. He doesn't say Peter. He says Simon or Simon Barjona, depending on what you're reading or what translation. And we might have some other labels from our past too, Right? And sometimes Jesus has to remind us, you know, after we've turned from him, after we've pulled away, after we've said, yeah, you know, I'm not going to go too serious, or I got, I'm busy, work, I got kids, I got this, I got that. We always have something. Guess what? Life is busy. It's as busy as you make it, though, right? Pastor Brian said that to me a couple of weeks ago. I got angry with him for a second. I was like, oh, I hate when he's right. Our lives are as busy as we make it. Our priorities are what we decide are our priorities. Amen? Right, amen. And so if I tell my, my, my son as he's growing up that sports are more important than Sunday service, well, guess what my son's going to grow up to think? Ouch. Sorry. Kind of, no. Because the reality is, is there's nothing more important than a relationship with Jesus for our kids. There's nothing more important than them seeing us have a solid, strong relationship with Jesus where he is a priority and we will not compromise that. Amen. Yes, sir. And so that's what we have to understand is that we're living demonstrations to our children of what is most important. Amen. My whole life when I was a little kid, I said, I'm going to be a major league baseball player. You know why? Because my father loved baseball, and that's the only time I got his full attention. And I was pretty good at it. And so all I did was play baseball. All I wanted to do was be better at baseball. Right? Sadly, I never grew, so. That's not funny. <laughs> but that's all my father demonstrated to me, so I thought that that was so important because that's what he held important. That was a priority to him. That's where I met him. But if my father was following Jesus, if my father made it a priority to put Jesus at the front of everything, and prayer, and giving, and serving, and reading, and going to church was a priority for my dad, it probably would have been for me too, because I just wanted to be with him. I wanted to be like him. And we've got to be careful. We, we wield great power as stewards over our children. We are managers of their lives for a very short time. They are God's before they are ours. He, they are a blessing from above. And if we do not treat them the way God has called us to treat them, we don't raise them the way God has called us to raise them. We have to answer for that, church. 
Simon, son of John, remember who you were. You know, all of us, like I said, we have our labels too, our pasts. Some of us were difficult, insecure, addicts, unstable, right? Losers, hopeless, whatever it was you called yourself or other people called you. And Jesus is reminding him, do you remember what I rescued you from? Do you remember the pit you were in when I met you? Do you remember? Simon, do you love me? Do you love me? Jesus affirms Peter's love for him before Peter takes any action at all, any type of religious action, right? Because Peter knows the rules. He grew up in that culture. It's not like, you know, he knows what repentance and confession and sacrifice look like, right? But what he's doing is, is he's affirming that Peter loves him before he does anything because repentance must be done with a sincere heart. He must have our whole heart before we can even move to repentance, to any type of religious action, right? It's not done just out of obligation, but out of deep love for Jesus, because motive is everything. Your why, the why you're here today, why are you in this room? Why'd you come here today? Do you know that the answer is here? Is that why? Somebody invite you, and you think it's a coincidence? God's grace, your motive, all of it, he's speaking to you. He wants you to hear from him. That's what Pastor Willie was praying for, because he wants God to speak to your heart. That's what I prayed for all morning and all night last night, because I wanted people to come in here and not hear Jamie. I wanted them to hear the gospel. I wanted them to hear God speak to them. I wanted them to leave different. I want to see salvation. I want to see recommittal. I want to see new life and restoration, because that's who our God is. He's a God of restoration. He's a God of completion. And so I'm going to have the worship team come on up. And I just want us to reflect a little bit. I asked you guys at the beginning, you know, has anyone here ever messed up since coming to Christ? And just about all of you raised your hands. And the others who didn't just messed up in that moment. <laughs> but is there anyone here right now who needs to be reminded and needs to know that no matter how far they've strayed, no matter how much you've messed up, no matter how messy your life has become, that things can still be right, made right? Breakfast is waiting. The altars are open. And we want to pray with you. But here's another invitation, because if you've never professed your faith in Jesus, then today is the day, the day to do that. This is what you came here for. This is who you've been looking for. This is what you've been looking for. It's not all the other stuff that's consumed you for your whole life. All the other stuff that's left you unfulfilled and unsatisfied and empty. Jesus doesn't do that. He's a God of immeasurably more. And so feel free. Make yourself, make your way to the altar if you'd like. Don't wait any longer. And if he's placed in your heart this morning to jump out of this familiar boat you've been living in, then come to him. Gird yourself up right now and take that swim. Do you need restoration? 
need some time with your Savior? He's asking you this morning, just like he asked Peter that morning, do you love me? My prayer is that you see his emblepo look this morning and you respond because breakfast is waiting.